Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. If you've got your Bibles, I hope that you do. Would you open them up to Hebrews chapter 9? Hebrews chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab that hardback black Bible from underneath your chair. And if you're using that Bible, you'll want to turn to page 1006. As I say each week, I want you to have your Bible open in front of you and read this. This isn't Josh talking. This isn't just my words. These are God's words, and so I'd like you to see that. So grab that Bible, open it up. Uh, And as you're opening it up, I want to point out that every year in February, thousands of people gather in the small town of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, to observe a ritual. And that ritual involves coming together to see a large rodent react to his shadow. It's Groundhog Day, right? We, we know this time-honored tradition. Every February 2nd, Americans and Canadians celebrate this holiday, holiday that we call Groundhog Day. And this has been going on for over 134 years. The whole idea, if you're not familiar, although I'm sure you are, is that at 7.25 a.m., as this groundhog comes out of his shadow, if he sees or comes out of his hole, if he sees his shadow, we will have six more weeks of winter. This year, we were told that Phil, and that's the groundhog's name, by the way, Phil did, in fact, see his shadow so we can expect more winter weather. My friends and family up in the Pacific Northwest are believing that. I think I I read 11 inches of snow in Tacoma, Washington, which never gets that much snow, so that's like a a once-in-a-hundred-years kind of storm. Um, But believe it or not, there have actually been studies to try and figure out, is Phil accurate? Can, can Phil actually accurately predict the weather? And, and I'm sure you will be shocked to learn that he is not. That in fact, you'd have a better chance of predicting the weather by flipping a coin. In 134 years of weather prognostication, Phil has been correct 39% of the time. I, I know that's shocking, but let's let that sink in. Groundhogs cannot predict the weather. They're, they just can't do it. And with that in mind, I think that we can all confess that the greatest value of that holiday that we call Groundhog Day is not the rodent coming out of the hole, but the 1993 classic movie starring Bill Murray and Andy McDowell, Groundhog Day. That is, I think, one of my top five favorite movies. It's a movie that I can watch over and over, and it never gets old. It's a great movie. If you're not familiar, you've had like 30 years to figure it out, so spoiler alert. It's about a guy named Phil Connors. He's a TV weatherman, and he gets sent to Punxsutawney to report on the groundhog coming out of his hole and seeing his shadow. And and while he's there in Punxsutawney, he gets stuck in a time loop. A time loop is where he just keeps repeating that same day over and over. He keeps repeating Groundhog Day. At first, he does whatever he can to break out of the time loop, but when that doesn't work, he begins to pursue thrills and pleasure. Eventually, he gets tired of that, and so he decides to start bettering himself. He learns to play the piano. He does a bunch of good deeds. He masters the art of ice sculpting, and he learns how to fall in love. And it's only then, after he has done all of these good things and become this great person, that Phil finally escapes the time loop. 
And when the movie is over, you get the sense that the universe was trying to teach him a lesson, that it was trying to teach him how to be a better person by repeating the same day over and over again until he finally got it right. The universe was using repetition to teach Phil Connors a valuable life lesson. And there's a very small amount of truth in that fact in the movie Groundhog Day. You see, repetition can be a very powerful learning tool. In fact, it's a medical fact that if, if you repeat a, an item or you repeat a, a practice over and over again, it will help to move your short-term memory into your long-term memory. Repetition is incredibly valuable for learning, and so it shouldn't surprise us as we return to Hebrews today that our author over the last four chapters or so has been getting incredibly repetitive. There there are some core truths here that he wants to sink down into our long-term memory, and, and as we've been reading through these three chapters, we've been hearing these same truths repeated over and over again almost to the point where it feels like our author is is telling us, hey, if you don't hear anything else I'm saying, I need you to hear this. If you are not paying attention at all, I need you to take this and store it into your memory. I need you to learn this right here. And so as we continue in Hebrews chapter nine today, we're going to hear a lot of repetition. And so as we move forward, I don't want to let that cause you to get concerned. Don't let that cause you to to tune out. I want you to stay with me here today because we need to hear this again. We really do. Because the big idea that we're going to hear all throughout today's text is the big idea that we've been circling around for the last couple of weeks. It's three words that we need to have penetrate all the way down to our bones. It's three words that can guide us as we walk through every aspect of life. It's three simple words. Jesus is enough. That's it. Those are the three words that I want you to walk away with today. Jesus is enough. So if you've arrived at Hebrews 9, I'd like to show you that right from the text. Let's dive in. Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 15. And we're actually going to take this to chapter 10, verse 18. Hang on, we're gonna make it, I promise. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf." Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. 
But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look to your word today, this, this long passage of scripture in Hebrews, God, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would help us to see that this is telling us that Jesus is enough, that he has completed everything that is required for us to draw near to you. And as we hear that message and as we see that today, God, I ask that you would work in our hearts and change our attitudes about how we approach you, that we would understand that we can come directly to you because Christ, he finished the work that he came to do. There's no more work to be offered. There's no more sacrifices to be offered. We don't need to earn your love, God, because you have shown and paid the price for us. So God, we ask that you would be at work here today. We need, we need to hear from you today. We need to be encouraged by you today to go throughout our week ahead. God, be with us in here today. At the same time, God, if there's somebody here who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, we ask that you would draw them to yourself, that you would woo them to yourself, that they would find the hope and freedom that is available in Jesus. We love you, Lord. We praise you for your son. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Today, we've been looking at already a fairly long chunk of scripture, 
but I don't want that to discourage you as we're, we're going here today. We will be reviewing a lot of things that we've already covered in the last few weeks, and so what you're going to find is that this goes actually pretty quickly. But as we dive in here, I do want to highlight three truths that are found here in Scripture that, that our author has been repeating over and over again. And, and if we can get these three truths into our brain, it will help us to see that Jesus is enough. These three truths are here. We've got to grab them. But as we do, the first truth I want you to see is found in verses 15 through 28. And that truth is that Christ's death was necessary. Last week, in the first half of chapter 9, we saw that, that Jesus was the only path to eternal redemption. And because Jesus is the only path to eternal redemption, as we continue today, we're going to see that he's the only path, and, and as a result of that, he is the mediator, that he brings about a better and a new covenant for us. And the way that he does that was through his death. We, we talked about that last week in, in detail. His death has redeemed us from the penalty of our sin. In his death, he literally takes away our sin and he gives us his righteousness, which leads us to an eternal inheritance. But as we've talked about that, we haven't talked about why his death was necessary. And we're gonna do that today. So, so let's take a look first at verses 16 and 17. It says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, really quick, what is a will? What's a will? We, we all know the textbook definition of a will. It's a legal document that says how you're going to divide someone's assets, assets after they have died. But, but what is a will in, in like practical terms? Isn't a will just a promise? Like, at my home, in, in my office, in the gun safe is my will. And in my will, it outlines how I'm going to give everything away. Now, first, if, if I die, everything goes to Tama. That is her reward for years of putting up with me. But if, in the event, both Tama and I have died, my will then stipulates how all of my stuff is going to be divided to multiple people. In essence, my will is a promise that's saying, hey, I promise that when I die, I'm going to give you these things. But what has to happen in order for that promise to be fulfilled? I have to die, right? I, I have to die in order for that promise to be fulfilled. And that's what these verses are saying right here. But there's more in those two verses than first meets the eye. Because we lose something here in our English translations of this text and without it, this paragraph can be a little bit harder to understand. In fact, it, these two verses talking about a will, they, they almost feel like they're out of place. And that's because we can read this in English, and that word that we read as will in the Greek is diatheke. And, and diatheke can be translated in, to mean will in the sense of a last will and testament, but diatheke can also be translated as covenant. And in the Greek text of this letter, that same word is used for both. When, when you read the word covenant in these verses, in this paragraph, it's diatheke. When you read the word will in these verses here, it's the word diatheke. It's the same word used in two different ways. And because it's, that's happening, what's actually going on in the text that we lose out on in the English translation is there's some wordplay going on right here. 
And what that wordplay is meant to show is that Jesus' death is working backward and forward. It's working in two directions at the same time. It's working backward in the sense that it covers and redeems us from our sin. But it's working forward in the sense that it secures and it activates our eternal inheritance. And so we can begin to see that Christ's death was necessary both to redeem us from our sin, but also to secure our inheritance. But there's, there's more than that because in both cases, there has to be proof of a death in order for that to happen, which is why there's going to be so much talk about blood in these verses. In, in verses 18 through 21, our author talks about the fact that the old covenant was sealed and inaugurated in the blood of animal sacrifices. And that purification of sin came through that blood. And the reason for that is in the Hebrew community, in the Hebrew culture, blood was synonymous with life. To to take a man's life was to spill his blood. So blood was sacred. And and, and as it was sacred, it, it was used to carry over, which is why God prohibited them from eating blood. In Leviticus 17, 11 through 12, simply put, blood was of infinite value. It was rated above everything else because it represented life. And that's why when a sacrifice of value was required, the blood of that sacrifice played such a central role. The blood was the ultimate symbol of the life itself. And when it came to dealing with sin, Nothing could purify, nothing could remove sin, nothing could satisfy the wrath and justice of God, but a sacrifice of infinite value. Which is why verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Our sin against God is serious. But often we define sin in such a way that we inadvertently kind of reduce the seriousness of that sin. We'll define sin in such a way that it loses its its seriousness and, and we start to take it lightly. We'll say things like sin is breaking God's rules. We'll, we'll say that sin is missing the mark, that it's failing to meet the requirements of holiness and righteousness that God requires. And while all of those definitions are correct, If we're not careful, they can change how we view sin. Sin is, to to use a word that is very popular in the media right now, it is insurrection against God. It is open rebellion against the creator and ruler of the universe. And so the price, the penalty for sin must be great. Blood has to be shed, which is why everything that's stained by sin on earth All of the things that we saw, all of the copies of the heavenly things that we've talked about over the last few weeks, the tabernacle, the instruments used in worship, the altar, all of it had to be purified with blood. But when it comes to the people of God, on this side of the cross, where we are God's temple ourselves, where we become the very dwelling place of God, we need a greater sacrifice than that of bulls and goats. That's what verse 23 is talking about. And so our author tells us again how Christ became that better sacrifice that we need. And he tells us in verses 24 through 28, take a look. He writes, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, 
which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, much of what we've just read right there, we have covered in the previous few weeks. In the last three or four weeks, we've covered much of that. But just to make sure that we're getting the main point of what our author is telling us right here, he's saying that Christ has stepped into, our, into heaven as our better high priest to intercede with God on our behalf. And unlike those Levitical high priests who had to keep offering sacrifices year after year, he offered himself once for all because he's a better sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice that will permanently deal with our sin. It didn't need to be repeated. So Christ's death really was necessary. He had to die, but he only had to die once. He, he didn't need to offer himself again. In his death, he covers and redeems our sin and, and when he comes a second time, it won't be to deal with sin. It won't be to, to take care of our sin problem because that's already been taken care of. It will be to call us to himself. Christ's death was necessary. But as we move forward in the text, the second truth that our author has been repeating to us is that Christ's obedience transformed how we approach God. Take a look with me, chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. He writes, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near to God. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, and I want to stop right there. And I want you to, to get what he, that he's been talking about this for the last few chapters. And especially last week, we spent a lot of time talking about this. The tabernacle under the old covenant, it, it did not work. It didn't work. It couldn't cleanse sins. It, these sacrifices didn't work. And the reason they didn't work can be seen in the very next verse. In verse 4, he says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The system of animal sacrifices, as we saw last week, it, it dealt with the outside. It could purify the outside, but it didn't get to the core of the matter. It didn't get to the heart of the matter. It was a symbol meant to point them to something greater. Their external purity was meant to point them toward a need for internal purity. But it could not take away their sin, which means that we're left standing with a problem. Because we read in chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And, th and then we read here in chapter 10, verse 4, that, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. So, so what do we do with that? We, where, does, where does that leave us? If we cannot approach God because of our sin, because we are unrighteous, 
And the only way to receive righteousness, the only way to receive the forgiveness of sins is through the shedding of blood. But the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sin. Where does that leave us? Does that leave us without hope? I I think the answer is no, it doesn't. The the answer is that it leaves us needing something greater than the blood of bulls and goats. It leaves us needing a sacrifice that is so much greater it leaves us needing another way to approach God. And in verses 5 through 10, we're going to see that. And we're going to see that that other way is through Christ. Take a look. Our author writes, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. I want you to underline that last verse right there. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Christ does away with the old system of sacrifices, the old way of doing things, and he he does away with it in order to establish a new way of doing things. But because we live on this side of the cross, I think we take that for granted. You see, under the old covenant, the only way to deal with sin, the only way to approach God was through the sacrifice that you made for your sin, that you brought through a priest. Can you imagine if that's where we were still at, what that would be like? Like we're here in the middle of a pandemic last spring, and we're trying to do this whole virtual school thing at home. And and so the school sent little Johnny home with this kind of cheap laptop. And we're using that CenturyLink internet, which is about as reliable as a Hurricane Sally forecaster. And, and, And as we're trying to do it, we're starting to lose our patience because Freckle is telling us that our our second grader needs to learn how to use the quadratic equation. And we know that he doesn't need to use the quadratic equation, but still, like we lose it, we blow up on little Johnny. At this point, we've sinned, right? So now we need to deal with that sin. So how do we deal with that sin? We, we grab a lamb and we go down to the tabernacle. And we give that lamb to a priest who sacrifices that lamb for our sin. And then we come home. And when we get home, we're met by little Johnny and that laptop and that CenturyLink internet and Freckle. And it's all telling us that we're going to need a lot more lambs because we know that we're going to lose it again because we haven't dealt with our sin down at the core. We haven't taken care of our sin problem. That's what the old covenant was like. But then Christ came. And when Christ came, he completely transforms how we're going to approach God. He does away with the sacrifices and the offerings and the burnt offerings and the sin offerings that the law required, and he simply does the will of God. What was the will of God? What was the will of God that Jesus did? The will of God that Jesus did was leave the glory and splendor of heaven and come down to earth. The will of God was that he put on flesh, that he lived among us, that he lived a perfect life of obedience where he followed every single letter of the law perfectly. He had no sin, 
The will of God was that he be crucified on a cross in our place, that he be buried in a borrowed tomb, and that he rise in victory over that sin and death that had tried to capture him. The will of God was that Jesus would be the perfect once for all time sacrifice for sin that would enable us to approach God. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus obeyed that will and he shed his blood. Verse 10 says, and by that will, the will of God that Jesus obeyed, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ gave his life for us. He shed his blood for us. And his blood did what the blood of bulls and goats and lambs could not do. It washes away our sin. Christ's blood also brought about the new covenant that we read about a couple weeks ago. The covenant where God changes our hearts and our minds, where he places his law into our hearts so that we have a, a desire to know him, a desire to follow him. We have a, a true love for God, a heart that seeks to know him so that now we can go directly to God. We don't need a priest. We don't need a sacrifice. We can just go straight to God. All we need is Christ. Our, our sin removed from us. Our heart is changed by God for us. And that means that Christ transformed how we approach God. That means that we can live out what we saw back in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. That we can, with boldness, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't need to try and find that in priests in sacrifices, Christ's obedience transformed how we approach God. But as we return to this text, there's one more truth that our author has been repeating that we need to let sink into our heads. And we need to get this quickly. So, so if you want to know that Jesus is enough, you need to get this into your head. And that truth is that Christ's work is complete. Christ's work is complete. Take a look, verses 11 through 17. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and I write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Think about that for a second. Think about what God is saying right there through the Holy Spirit. There's, there's a finality in that. There, there's no more work to be done. Jesus' once-for-all-time sacrifice is complete. And I love the imagery that's being used right there in that text. So, so last week, as we looked at the tabernacle, our, our author described the different furniture, all of the accoutrement that was being used inside the tabernacle, in the holy place and the most holy place. But do you know what he never described? In all of the items that he described in that letter there, he never described a chair. 
You know why he never described a chair? Because the priest never sat down. He never got to sit down. And why didn't he ever get to sit down? Because his work was never complete. He was always offering sacrifices. There was always going to be a need for another sacrifice. So the Levitical priests never got to sit down in the sanctuary. They were always standing. But when Christ came, he made a single offering, one sacrifice that was offered for all time, one sacrifice that perfected that which all of the old sacrifices could not perfect. One sacrifice that removes our sin and makes us righteous before God. And then he just sits down at God's right hand because his work was complete. Are you seeing that right there? When Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, he meant it. His work was done. He had fulfilled the promise of Jeremiah 31. That's what our author is saying here. He's saying that this promise from Jeremiah was the Holy Spirit's testimony about what Jesus would do. And the result of what Jesus did at the end is is in verse 17 there. He says, I, God the Father, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Sin is forgiven and forgotten by God. He's dug down to the root of our problem, down to the very core. Our sin has been removed. Christ's work is complete. And the implication of that is what we read in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, the the forgiveness of sin, the forgiveness of lawless deeds, that's what he's saying there, where there's the forgiveness of these There is no longer any offering for sin. That's big right there. Like, that's huge. You've got to let that sink in. If we can let that sink in and and let it take hold, that can be life-changing for us. Because the implication of what that says in verse 18 is that everything that needs to be done has been accomplished. The the implication is that Jesus has finally done what 2,000 years of rule following could not accomplish. Our sin has been paid for. Jesus really is enough. But the problem is, if you're anything like me, that truth can be really, really hard to take hold of. We can hear it all the time because it seems kind of like it's too good to be true. It it seems like it's just too easy. And because it seems like it's too good to be true, because it it seems like, like it's just too easy, I'm constantly trying to earn my own righteousness. I'm constantly trying to be good enough on my own. It's like I've got this head in, or this, this, this voice circling around back here in the back of my head, and it's always kind of yelling at me. You've got to earn it. You've got to show that you're worthy. Yes, the gospel is news. Yes, Jesus has done it, but you need to help him out. You need to just do a little bit more. You need to work harder, be better. 
And then I find this attitude welling up in me that, that cries out to God and says, look, God, look, look at what I've done for you. Look how hard I'm working for you. Look at the way that I'm serving you. Now you can love me. Now you can accept me. Now you can welcome me in. You see, I keep trying to run back to that tabernacle. I keep trying to go back and offer sacrifices that are never gonna wash away my sin, but I don't need to. Because what Jesus has done has taken care of all of my sin. Jesus is enough. There's no sacrifice to be offered because Jesus has taken care of that. Is this starting to sink in yet? Are you starting to to get this in your brain? Jesus, he is enough. Over and over again, our author has been repeating these truths to us. We can't bring a sacrifice that will cover our sin. We can't do enough to be righteous on our own. We need a better sacrifice. And Jesus is that better sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice has paid the price for our sin. And all this repetition that we're seeing here in these last four chapters, it's got a point. God wants this to get deep down into our soul. He needs it to move from the front of our brain to the back of our brain. He needs us to know that Jesus is enough. And when we finally let that sink in, when that finally works its way into the point where we understand it, it will change everything about how we live our lives. Instead of trying to bring the right sacrifice, to bring the the perfect sacrifice that will cover our sin for us, we can celebrate in Jesus's perfect sacrifice. Instead of trying to do it ourselves, we can rest We can rest in the fact that Jesus has done it for us. Instead of wasting all of this energy trying to be perfect, trying to be good, trying to be right, we can take that energy and we can use it for what we've been called to use it for, to proclaim the gospel, to share the good news that we have found in Jesus. When that finally sinks in, we'll find this peace and freedom and joy that is only going to be found when we recognize that Jesus is enough. So let that sink in today. You don't need to bring another sacrifice. You don't need to be better on your own. You need to just let go, stop, and recognize that he has paid the price for our sin. Jesus is enough. Stop fighting. Stop trying. Trust him. He can do it. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.